0: I love Christmas. I love this time of the year. Certainly, I am more grateful for the work of Easter, but I absolutely love Christmas, and I have always loved Christmas, even when I wasn't really a believer. You see, I love Christmas Eve services. Again, even when I wasn't particularly a believer, I loved the dark, the the solemn, the sacred music, the message, the story. I love the decorations. I love the Christmas trees and the nativities. I love presents, both giving and receiving. And I even love the shopping because it's both thought-provoking and competitive. It's the only time of the year where there's really winners and losers and there's a real risk of failure. And so that's the only time of the year I actually enjoy shopping. I read an article this morning that... (laughs) that apparently, and believe it or not, people get paid to do this, that a research study was done which identified a class of shoppers that they have termed sport shoppers, those for whom it is actually just about the thrill of competition. And that's me. It's the only only way I like it. And I know that not every Christian feels this way about Christmas, right? There are some mixed feelings about the commercialism uh, and kind of the mix of the secular and the sacred, and I can respect that, but I still have a lot of fun at Christmas. I love it. And one of the things that's kind of cool about Christmas is every year you get a chance to decide, do you want to celebrate it and observe it in a really elaborate way? Or in a very simple way. And the interesting thing is both of those options can be very faithful and true to the message and spirit of Christmas. Well, this year at Lakers Baptist, we're going to focus on a simple Christmas. We're going to go back to the basics, the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, the how, of what Scripture says about the birth of our Lord. As we do it, we're going to try and capture a flavor of the experience of those who were there when Jesus was born. And so here's the lineup of things we've got coming up, because it's always good to know. Right Next week, we'll be worshiping in song with Sing with the Angels. In two weeks, Kevin Guthrie will be uh, preaching to us about the, the shepherds and the angels. In three weeks, I'll be back and we'll talk about the wise men and the way that Luke sets up a very clear contrast between two extremely different kingdoms. It'll all culminate on Christmas Eve where we'll have our family worship at 5 o'clock and at 6.30 we have our candlelight service where I'll try to answer the question of why. Why Christmas? You'll recall that a few weeks ago I asked you to commit to pray for and invite your friends and your relatives and your neighbors and your coworkers, the ones you'd like to see worshiping here in the seats next to you sometime throughout the season. And so I would encourage you keep praying, and keep inviting. The research is clear. Well over half of those who don't go to church would be willing to go to church if they would just receive an invitation. So I urge you to fulfill those commitments you made in the presence of the Lord and invite people because we've got some great things going on for Christmas here at Lakeridge Baptist Church. Now, as I said, our focus this month is really going to be on what the Word of God says about the birth of Jesus. And today's passages are from the book of Luke, and they are extremely familiar to us. They're extremely familiar even if the extent of your theological knowledge is watching Charlie Brown. And so I'm going to read them in a slightly different translation Because when we hear the same words over and over again every year from childhood on, we can start to filter those words out and we miss the actual message. And I want us to hear these words again for the first time. So if you would, read along with me in Luke. We'll start in chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And then we're going to go ahead to chapter 2 in the first seven verses there. Luke writes, in the sixth months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Now, before we dig into this passage, I want to jump ahead and read about nine months later. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem, in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancee, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. I'm going to talk about these passages in reverse order. I want to begin with this latter reading from chapter 2 because, one, it is probably the most famous passage about the Christmas story. Again, it's the one that just about anybody who's at least seen Charlie Brown Christmas knows. And it is the one that addresses the how of Christmas, how Jesus was born. And and in my observation, it's the part that really captures our imagination, right? It's been recreated in movies and in TV shows and on stages and in preschool pageants and on church lawns. And in essays and in sermons, time after time after time, we, we love this part and we love to bring it to life in our mind's eye as we visualize what we think it must have been like. I'll give you a short form of that 21st century visualization, the one we typically bring to mind or read or think about. Mary is an impoverished teen mother-to-be. Traveling with her fiance to the distant town of Bethlehem. As they make the four day journey, she goes into labor. They reach Bethlehem, desperate to find some place warm and safe to give birth to the child. But they're rebuffed at every door and forced to give birth in a filthy stable, where she wraps the baby in whatever rags she had available and lays him in a feeding trough among the animals. And it's easy to see how this story grips our imagination, right? Because it is so different from the way we live. And yet at the same time, many of us have familiarity with children and having babies. Enough so that we can relate and wring our hands and marvel at this terrible how of Jesus' birth. But is that what Luke is actually saying here in chapter 2? Is that the point we're supposed to take away as Christians as we read these verses? Are we supposed to be shocked and dismayed or saddened or indignant and offended on God's behalf? And I think the answer is no. I think that as we read this passage carefully, we see a detailed factual account of the historical circumstances of the birth. Very meticulously covering many of the details of the, of the where and the when and the how. But I don't think that's meant to communicate that something terribly weird happened here. In fact, I think Luke is communicating that it was not all that out of the ordinary. I realize I may have got a few skeptics out here now. Yes, Mary was a teen mother, almost certainly. It's not in the verses, but we can sort of imply that culturally, because what shocks us in an era where it is pretty much impossible for a teenage girl to be a capable and and mature mother was ordinary 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, you probably had your first child as a teenager, so there's nothing remarkable about this aspect of how Jesus was born. Were they impoverished? Right? We love, I, feel like I, see, I see that word a lot in these descriptions. We don't really know. I mean, probably not wealthy. I think we can safely say that. But the reality is Joseph was a skilled craftsman who'd be able to find work wherever he was. We traditionally call him a carpenter but the Greek word that's used to describe his trade is tekton. And a tekton is not exactly a carpenter. There's a different word if you're just a carpenter. A tekton usually is someone who not only works with wood, but they work with stone, and they quite often can work with metal. We would typically call him today a builder or a general contractor. And the point is not the specific trade, but rather that unlike being a farmer or a shepherd... Joseph's profession enables him to go. Whenever God says, you need to move, he can move and know that his family will be provided for because there's always work for a general contractor. It's just as true 2,000 years ago as it is today. So again, nothing remarkable about this aspect of how Jesus was born. Now, we often picture Mary going into labor while she's on the road to Bethlehem, which obviously would be pretty unfortunate. But that's not what the passage says. Verses 5 and 6 say, He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who is now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. While they were there, not while they were on their way there. The birth of Jesus was not... An unplanned roadside emergency. It didn't take place on the shoulder of the beltway around Bethlehem. Instead, they were already in town. They were conducting their census-related business, and the time came. Again, nothing remarkable about this aspect of how Jesus was born. Verse 7 says, She wrapped him in strips of cloth, swaddling clothes. Okay, this one always kind of freaks me out. I've had two kids, and I just cannot picture the logistics of how strips of cloth will be anything other than a terrible mess within a few hours. But is that a sign of an unfortunate condition? No, that's what you did with the baby back then when you wanted to keep him warm. It's the equivalent of our saying that she wrapped him in a diaper and a onesie and an ice-warm receiving blanket. Again, nothing remarkable about this aspect of how Jesus was born. And finally, we come to the part that really gets most devout Christians indignant. When Mary laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now, the idea that Jesus was born in a stable or a cave dates back to the mid-2nd century, about 150-ish years after Jesus was born. And it stems from the fact that he was laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The tricky part is that, while that is what the passage says, the part where that then translates to a stable may well not be what the passage means. See, the word in this verse that's usually translated as "in," as in, there's no room for them in the inn, appears two other times in the New Testament. And in those two cases, it's talking about the guest room where Jesus and the disciples observed the Last Supper. Not a hotel, a guest room. And in fact, that word can be translated as guest room. There's a different word that can mean in, like we think of, and in fact, Luke uses that word when he talks about the Good Samaritan taking the injured man and putting him in an inn with an innkeeper. So while it's not 100% certain, it is very likely that Luke is just saying that there was no room in a guest room that's available for rent in town. A guest room that would have been attached to a house would have had a separate entry, so it's sort of private living quarters, and, and that would have been ideal for sure for Mary and Joseph, and probably ideal for everybody in the immediate area because babies aren't all that quiet. But Bethlehem was filled with the descendants of David, who were there registering for the census, and so the publicly available guest rooms were probably just all rented out. So what does a couple do when they're in a town that is full of their distant relatives? Elizabeth actually lives very close to Bethlehem. When it talks about the hill country where Mary goes to visit her, it's, it's this area. So what do you do? You have this, room, this town full of your relatives, distant, but relatives, nonetheless, in a culture that prizes hospitality so much that if you turned away a pregnant woman and forced her to give birth in a stable, you would have been at the level of sin. You would have caused a situation. It would have been such a breach of hospitality. So what do you do? You stay in the main room of the house with everybody else, the family and all the other guests who don't fit in a guest room, and you... You sleep on the floor, just like everybody else did back then. See, both the biblical and the archaeological record attest to the fact that in houses at that time, people also lived with their animals. And I'm not just talking about pets. We're talking about livestock. So here are two recreations uh, that are based on archaeological evidence and do jibe with certain scriptural references to animals in the house. One shows a guest room attached with a separate entrance. The other shows the basic two-room division, right? You have one larger room that's elevated a little bit. That's the family room. They cook, they eat, they sleep there on the floor. The second is a little down a little bit. You got a few steps out. It's where your entrance and exit is. It's where the animals live in your house. There's a manger down there for the smaller animals. But for the taller animals, you have a manger up in the family room area. Again, it's elevated a little bit, so the trough for the taller animals is up there. So it is entirely possible and probably even likely that Jesus was born in the family room and placed in the manger, and here I'm just speculating, probably so that people don't roll over him and crush him because there's so many people packed on the floor to sleep that night. Because that's what he did in first century Israel, when you have a crowd, you don't turn people away. You just keep packing them in. Admittedly, this piece is a bit remarkable, right? All the other things, I would argue, are ordinary. But, but really, this is not ideal for a king. It is notable, right? We know it's notable because Luke noted it. That's one of the things. When we, when we want to add extra biblical elements to the story, we need to realize if Luke doesn't comment on it, it probably means it's normal, So he mentions this because I think it is a little bit out of the ordinary, but I think the reason he mentions it is very simple. The strips of cloth and the manger are the two signs that the angels give the shepherds so they know which baby is the one they're looking for, right? Probably Jesus was not the only little baby in Bethlehem. It's a small town. It's probably not a lot, but there's probably more than one. So the angels tell the shepherds, look for the one that's, wrapped up, and in a food trough. And that's distinct enough that they can find the right child. And I really think that's all Luke is saying here. There's not extra commentary about the situation. And I think if we choose to focus on this and get worked up on the how, we're focusing on the wrong thing. We're not looking at the things Luke wants us to look at. Because we read these first seven verses of chapter 2 in Luke, I think the things he wants us to look at are, first, that the birth of Jesus is a carefully documented historical event. The second is that the mechanics of the birth were not all that extraordinary. Jesus was born in a happy and healthy and safe situation. It was the best it could be under difficult circumstances. Not ideal for the birth of a king but not all that unusual either. Probably the most important thing that we're supposed to be taking out of this verse, set of verses, rather, is not about the how, but the where that it took place in Bethlehem. Because that fact is extremely important to the who of Jesus. Jesus had to be born there. And so God had to find a way or create a way, to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at just the right moment in time. And to me, that's perhaps the most fascinating part of this is how God went about doing that. Because you know they would have rather been home at Nazareth. You know, if you're eight months pregnant or whatever, you don't want to make a four-day walking trip. And it was probably walking. The donkey, again, doesn't show up until the mid-second century. A walking trip for four days. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be in a strange place. You want to be home. But as verse 1 says, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. What I love is that God chose to use the pagan emperor of Rome. Probably the most powerful man on earth at this time. A man who thought of himself as God. And we actually have inscriptions from 9 BC that declare him the savior of the world. This is the guy that God uses to introduce the real savior of the world. He takes the Roman Empire and the power of the Roman Empire and uses it to launch the kingdom of God. God works someone who was almost certainly an enemy of his to make the where happen because of the who. And it's the who that is the real point of the entire Christmas narrative, both the parts we've read today and the parts we're going to look at in coming weeks. That is the thing that over and over and over again, the weight of the verses is about about who was born that night, not how. And so I want us to do what the evangelists want us to do, to get excited about who was born that night. That night. So now let's return to the passage in chapter 1. Because that directly addresses the who. The thing that is the ultimate, I think, point of the Christmas narrative. And the angel speaks at great length about the child who is to be born. But verses 31 to 33, I think, cover the three most important things about who is being laid in the manger on that first Christmas. The angel said, You will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And so the first thing that the angel says about him is that his name will be Jesus. Jesus, the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is Jesus' real name, means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. This child is to be named God saves. Now in this culture, a child's name was meant to communicate a desire, a wish, or a truth about the child. And why did God specify this name? Well, it's interesting because Matthew 121 says it's because he will save his people from their sins. Now, Yeshua was a very common first century name in Israel because the people were desperate for the Lord to come and save them from Roman oppression. Salvation from sins is not on their radar. It will not be on their radar until John the Baptist starts talking to them. They are desperate to get out from under the heel of Rome. They returned from exile 500 years ago, and they have been passed from one empire to the next with brief periods of independence. But in all of it, they recognize that while they may have been physically back from exile, they are not really back from exile. So they are desperate for the Lord to save. And so usually when parents name their child Yeshua, it was expressing their desire for the Lord to work. But in this case, it's God who declares the name. Because he is making a promise that this is the child who would save us from our sins. Not just the sins of the people of Israel. Not just the sins of people who are alive then but the sins of everyone across the centuries and around the world who have put their faith in him who have put their trust in Jesus. And as always, God delivered on that promise. Through this tiny baby, salvation entered into the world. And that is the first and most important thing that we today must take away from this passage about who was born that night. It's the Savior of the world the one who came to live and to die and to be raised from the dead so that those who put their faith in him can receive salvation and live forever in the presence of God. And if that's not who Jesus is for you today, then I point you to this passage and I point you to the other passages about Christmas. And I would urge you to reflect on them and to reflect on God's work in this world and his desire to rescue you from your sins, no matter how far away from him you may be right now. I would urge you to put your faith in Jesus, not the baby, but the risen Son of God, that you too might be saved from your sins. Now, the second thing we see about the who is that Jesus is the rightful descendant of David, who will assume that eternal throne of David and rule forever. And while salvation from sins was the most important thing for us to take away, for them, for the first century Israelites, this is the thing they have been desperate for, right? As I just said, they have been waiting for centuries for this to happen. A thousand years before, God had promised to David that his kingdom would be eternal. And yet for centuries, there had not been a Davidic king in Israel. But the people knew one was coming, one who would be eternal, one who would rule all the nations. They knew it because God had promised it to them through Isaiah and through Micah 700 years prior. Through Daniel and through the Psalms. They were desperate for this king to come. And as we carefully read the Christmas passages and really think about why is this detail here? Why is this detail here? We see that over and over and over again, the message that's being communicated is that Jesus is the descendant of David. He is the king who has come. We see it in the genealogies, the things that we're so tempted to skip over because they're long and it's a bunch of names that are kind of unfamiliar to us. But the point of those genealogies is that they scream David, David. He's a descendant of David through Joseph. He's a descendant of David through Mary. The relative points of reference in the genealogies are to David. There's a ton of other things. They're about David. We see repeated the idea he is a descendant of David. He goes to Bethlehem because he's a descendant of David. How many times is it repeated that he's a descendant of David? So that the people then and the people now know who Jesus is. He is that long-promised, perfect, and eternal Davidic king. His kingdom started 2,000 years ago, and it continues to grow today. We see to the ends of the Earth in the video. But it's also right here at Lakeridge. Jesus is the one true and eternal king, the rightful heir of David. He's the king over all the nations American, European, African, Asian, Middle Eastern, all those who put their trust and faith in him. He is the rightful king. He is the only good and just king. He is perfect in his sinlessness, majestic in his power, and humble in his sacrifice. That's who was born that night. And the final thing the angel tells Mary about who was born that night was that he's the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. This is the thing we should just... That should amaze us about Christmas. Because we know that Jesus is eternal. He has always existed. He was present at creation. Creation would not have happened without him. He was there. It happened through him. He is God himself. He is the perfect image of God the Father as well. Even today, he holds everything together through his power. And yet, he chose to step into this world as a baby in a feed trough in a little town in the Middle East. And he did it because he was on a mission. And we'll talk about that mission on Christmas Eve, but for today, I think it is sufficient to just just marvel at who it was that chose to be born that night in Bethlehem. And that is the point that Luke is making in these verses. So as we prepare to go out into the world today, please understand, I'm not saying you should go home and throw away your nativities. I do not want you to do that. I would be shot by my mother-in-law if I did. I will have ours up out in our yard soon. They are a beautiful symbol that reminds us of what happened and gives us a great opportunity to talk to our children and our neighbors and our friends about who was born that night. When we look at them, let's not remember them as a symbol of, of the how. You know, They're not a symbol of a miserable and unfortunate birth experience of someone who turned out to be important. They're a symbol that one night long ago The eternal Son of God, through whom all things were created and by whom all things hold together, chose to come into this world as a tiny baby and launch God's kingdom here on earth. That's who was born. Let's pray.